So who are some of the most prolific serial killers you can think of? Um, Jack the Ripper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy. It's off the top of my head. So, okay, I've got some of those listed. Um, Ted Bundy committed about 30 murders. Jeffrey Dahmer did 17. Uh, the Hillside Strangler, Ken Bianchi, murdered 12 people. Jack the Ripper is believed to be guilty of at least five, probably more, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, David Berkowitz, who's the son of Sam, killed six people. And the guy we're going to talk about today killed at least 48 people. 48? Yep. Kind of puts him in some a special category yeah, of serial killer. Um, the There's only a few recent serial killers that have murdered as many people. Uh, that includes Andre Chikatilo, which we'll, we're going to get into a little bit later. He's also a Russian serial killer convicted of 52 murders in 1994. And then there's Yang Chinhai, who killed about 67 people in central China from 99 to 2003. Jeesh. So the guy we're talking about today is Alexander Pachuskin. He's a Russian serial killer, just like Andrei Chikatilo. Um, he was named the Bitsetsky Park Maniac, and then later on the chessboard killer, because police found a chessboard in his apartment, which he had recorded his murders, one per square. No way. Mm-hmm. Yahweh. <laughs> so that's who we're talking about today. Let's uh, let's do the roll the intro music at me because I'm editing. It. <laughs> roll it, Alexander <laughs> Alexander Yuryevich Pachuskin, aka the Chessboard Killer, and the Bitska Park Maniac was a Russian serial killer operating in the Bitsa Park of Moscow, who was convicted in 2007 of killing 49 people between 1992 and 2006. But it's believed that he killed as many as 60 or more during the same time. This is Country Roads, Roads Creeps. Creeps. So, just like a quick like pre- preface, preface. The, all the sources are like totally different on the numbers that like some of them love say. love an episode like that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> Uh, the main reason, I think, is because they're all, like, it's people trying to pull numbers from Russia, which... Yeah, fair. And from the 90s, early 2000s, and because they... This guy killed, like, between 60 and 62 people that he thought that he killed. They actually convicted him of, like, 48 or 49 people. Mm-hmm. And then there were two or three, depending on which source you read, attempted murders. So, but we're going to get into all of that. Just okay. if somebody goes and researches this after the fact and says, oh, no, there was one extra. I know. I know. <laughs> we're promise, doing our best. Promise I know. I had like nine tabs pulled up that all set a different number. So, like, <laughs> get over that. it. Um, is there anything you want to say before we get started? Yeah, I actually need to make a correction to something I said in our last episode about the Heaven's Gate cult. Uh, There was part of it where I had mentioned a girl that just got released from prison, and I called her the wrong name. I said it was Dee Dee Blanchard, but that's the girl's mother. Uh, Her name is actually Gypsy Rose Blanchard. And I knew that. I don't know why I mixed up those names, but I didn't realize it until I went back and re-listened to the episode. So sorry to everybody that I said the wrong name. This is a correction for that. Great. (laughs) Had to get out of the way before I forgot about it again. 
Yeah, that's uh, so. I, I remember, remember, like four seconds ago when I said I wasn't going to do the shoes thing. Um, yeah, because we've already tried to do this once and our thing froze, and we had to start I'm, over. <laughs> I'm breaking like the fifth wall of our podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say it, but in a shorter, abridged version. Okay, um, a summary. Yeah. Of what we already tried to do once today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because our thing froze. Yeah. Uh, so basically, the last episode, we were talking about the Heaven's Gate cult, and I was trying to find pictures of the shoes to see what the Nike decades were, and I couldn't get the right kind of file from Google Images. And so I finally found this article from Sneaker News that had the right picture that I needed, and so I used that. So that's the picture from our photo dump for the last episode. But then I was reading the article and I'll give the summary version you can go read it for yourself on sneaker news about the Nike decades and the heaven's gate cult. But uh, basically this dude sold them like 42 or 43 pairs or whatever of these shoes. And was, that was so proud of his sale that he hand delivered it to the, the place where they were living. And even like he called other stores and said, that he needed these shoes and he got them and he's such a good salesman. Good job for him. And then the next day he found out that all of them, uh, did a mass suicide. That's such a bummer. Yeah. So he was all like super excited about his sell. And then, then anyway, so he ended up later on when all this stuff was like, they were like court cases and stuff and all this going on in the news. He found the waitress who served them their last meal of the iced tea and the peach cobbler. And then, and she was all worried about it. And they, they said that like they were so polite while they were in the restaurant. And then the manager shook everybody's hand because they were such pleasant customers. And they, when they went to eat their last meal, they all wore the same clothes. And, um, it, I mean, crazy story. And then she found out like next day that they all killed themselves. And so, and then the insurance salesman who sold them all the, uh, alien abduction insurance, he found out like same time. So yeah, because they probably all saw it on the headline. Yeah, that's so, so wild. So yeah, these three people all ended up like connecting over this thing because they were involved in the Heaven's Gate, like assisting the Heaven's Gate, I guess. But it's but like Directly bad to say that unknown. Yeah, <laughs> that's um, and so they they all had like these problems where it's like, do you, like should we have known? Should we have said something? And so they ended up the three of these people came up with that tagline that you've probably seen all over the place at least according to this article, says uh, that they kind of form this saying that if you see something, say something, which is super popular. Is that where that originated? That's what this article said. I'm, I'm sure like Sneaker News is a really trusted source. So. <laughs> the most reputable source. Yeah. That's that's pretty wild. Anyway, our thing hasn't messed up yet, so we're going to do Alexander Pichuskin. We're going to hope that this keeps recording. Yeah. I'll cry. Please keep recording. Oh, it just froze. No. No, I'm joking. That scared me. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Anyway, Alexander Pachuskin, let's go. So, early life for almost all serial killers, I think, is pretty interesting. Um, Almost always involves some kind of abuse or some kind of head injury or both. So, it's kind of interesting to see how much brain trauma might be involved in making a serial killer that might otherwise just turn out to be a normal person. Um, especially since a lot of them are like really, really smart uh, as kids. But I mean, we're going to get into that a little bit later. So Alexander 
Pechuskin was born on April 9th, 1974, in, there's a bunch of Russian words here, so. Skip it. Don't even try, please. So everyone can just. We are not good at that. <laughs> pretend that I pronounced them all correctly. He was born April 9th, 1974, in Metishki, Moscow, Oblast, Russian SFSR, in the Soviet Union. The uh, the SFSR is the um, the Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. That's the Russian part of the Soviet Union. Okay. So, because at the time it covered like all of these Eastern European countries. Anyway, so it has his address here. He grew up on two Kursonkaya Street in Moscow proper, and he lived there with his mother Natalia. Elmora Dovna <laughs> and his younger half sister, her husband, and their son in a two bedroom apartment on the fifth floor. Their apartment building was a six minute walk from the north end of Bitska Park. So that's where he was operating during his killings. But we're not out of his childhood yet. So Alexander Petruskin is remembered to have been pretty sociable as a child. There's nothing really necessarily wrong with him. But that changed when there was an incident where Petruskin fell backwards off of a swing. And then, I guess, as he was setting up, it came back and hit him in the forehead. Those head injuries will get you. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, these serial killers, so many of them had had, had a head injury in childhood. Yeah. They did. There's If you look at, like, I think somebody's compiled a list I heard on a podcast once where it was like the each serial killer and if or if not they had a head injury and like almost all of them did. Yeah. So anyway, uh, experts have thought for a while that that specific event damaged the frontal cortex of Petrusin's brain and that damage in that frontal cortex is known to produce poor impulse regulation and a tendency towards aggression. So that's probably doesn't have anything to do with being serial killer though, right? <laughs> anyway, um, since he was still a child, I read that the damage would have been maybe a little bit more severe because your forehead doesn't have as much protection as you would if you were an adult for your brain. So, okay, you got a you got a soft forehead if you're a kid. <laughs> so, uh, following the accident, uh, Petruskin became hostile and impulsive pretty often. So, kind of kind of weird that you can have a brain injury and it just changes your entire personality. Yeah, it's pretty scary like, how quick and easy something like that could happen. Yeah, what if you hit me on the head and I became like... Nice. Yeah, like nice and able to put together a coherent thought. <laughs> like, Podcast would be different. We'll try that after this episode. <laughs> uh, so his behavior kind of became problematic and his mother decided to transfer him to... Uh, this other school from, he was going to a regular public school, I guess, in Russia. Mm -hmm. um, but she transferred him to a school for children with learning disabilities. And before that transfer, he was having a lot of problems at school because the children from that public school were uh, physically and verbally bullying him. And they referred to him as um, that R word. Oh, that's the worst. That's so sad. Yeah, word you're not allowed to say anymore. Poor thing. So, 
Um, that abuse kind of just made everything worse for him. He got more angry. He got more impulsive. He got, he wasn't able to regulate his aggression as much because of this bullying. And so when he started becoming like a teenager, uh, his maternal grandfather saw that he was actually pretty intelligent for, despite like being in this special needs school and despite all the kids bullying him and stuff. And despite his other, um, I guess like temper regulation problems. Right. He said that his talents were being wasted because he wasn't involved in any activities at home and the school that he was enrolled in focused more on overcoming disabilities than promoting any kind of special interests or any kind of achievement. So Pachuskin moved in to his grandfather's house and he was encouraged to pursue intellectual uh, pursuits outside of the school because they weren't like having any kids pursue any kind of intellectual tasks like they were in the mainstream public schools. Was it, was the, his school focused more on like the behavior? Um, it, I didn't see anything about that. I, I'm not sure if it was like specifically learning disabilities or if it was behavioral issues or probably it. So this would have been in like the eighties, I guess yeah. in Russia. So I doubt that they had any like, like special categories for right. anything like that. So, and actually not only Russia, but it was a USSR. So like you're kind of, you're almost lucky that like they don't become teenagers and they just put them in a work camp somewhere. So anyway, the deepest of these intellectual pursuits that Petruskin found interesting was chess. So he was taught how to play by the grandfather and he actually kind of got he kind of got the hang of it and it's kind of like a big pattern recognition thing at a certain point but also there's a lot of intuition that goes into playing chess so he just kind of it's the thing that he got so his father kind of pushed or not his father his grandfather kind of pushed him into playing chess quite a bit and i read somewhere that he actually played pretty much every day with his grandfather or he would go and play these exhibition games against elderly men in the park. That's in Bisca Park. And he was, this. they say, an outstanding chess player. Um, I'm going to get into this a little bit later. I didn't find anything on how actually good he was, but they say that he was very good. So he actually found kind of an outlet for the aggression when he was playing chess because he beat everybody. So That's good. Kind of neat. It's a healthy way to do it. Yeah. Um, but, but. <laughs> he continued to be bullied by all these school children from the public school and he, they put it kind of lightly. They say he suffered an emotional blow toward the end of his adolescence when his grandfather died. Aww. And I don't want to like put it as lightly as they do because they say it's an emotional blow. It like completely shattered his entire world. Yeah. That was like the one good thing he had working for him yeah his grandfather actually said that he was a smart kid he pushed him to play chess that was the Found thing that was helping for him yeah Aww. and then he died so Pachuskin was left to go back to his mom's house and after that he enrolled as a student in i don't think he went back to this special needs school i think he went back to the regular mainstream school so anyway according to most of the sources that i saw and according to most of the reports that came out 
after Pachuskin was arrested initially, um, the death of his grandfather really, really messed him up. And in an effort to kind of level him out, I guess, he decided he was just going to drink vodka all day long. Oh, no. And that was sort of meant to dull the pain of his grandfather's loss, but also, or rather the loss of his grandfather, and also it kind of was supposed to calm his aggressive tendencies. It it didn't really do that, kind of. Yeah. Almost did the opposite. So he kept playing chess at the park, and then he started drinking vodka with all the old men too. But he was a little bit different with his vodka drinking. He would get drunk and still be able to play chess, and they all couldn't. So he was just as good drunk yeah. as he was being sober. Do you know about how old he was at this point? Did you already say that? Um, he was a teenager. Oh, okay. So, um, Somewhere in high school. Yeah, I think so. It's, and the thing about this is like you can't really, you kind of just have to guesstimate like how old he was at right. certain points. But we don't have specific dates. But that's yeah. okay, though. We know it was roughly in high school. So he was, um, well, we'll get into it right after this next mm-hmm. little note. But anyway, he could play chess without being affected by the alcohol. And he developed this kind of, let's call it a weird hobby, uh, where he would take a video camera and he would he would go to children and threaten them and videotape it. And one particular incident that was later made public was that he held a young child by one leg upside down and said to the camera, quote, you are in my power now. I'm going to drop you from the window and you will fall 15 meters to your death, end quote. He then watched these videos repeatedly to reaffirm his power. Weird hobbies putting it a little lightly there. Weird That's hobby. incredibly yeah. concerning. It's definitely a red flag, I would say. Uh, yeah. Um, so then we jump to 1992 where just threatening kids and videotaping it wasn't good enough. So no, let's go to that. So Petruskin committed his first murder on July 27th, 1992 when he was 18 years old. That's not good. So this, this is his first, there are at least 48 or 49 others that he was convicted of. And then some others, um, we're not going to get into all of them because this would be like an eight hour podcast. Um, what I will say is that we're getting into most of the more common and more detailed ones. Okay. Um, and also there's not a ton of information to really go into on the other like 45 that I'm not going to cover. That's fair. But anyway, his first murder, he met a classmate uh, Mikhail Odechuk in Bitsa Park to jointly hatch a plan to kill 64 people. So, Jeez, fr- right off the start? Yeah, that was his goal immediately. So when, when they got to uh, where they were supposed to meet at, Odechuk kind of changed his mind and told Pachuskin that he didn't really want to, he didn't really want to kill all these people anymore. Yeah, that's good. So... Pajuskin kind of felt like betrayed or teased, however you want to put it. 
And so he strangled his friend Odachuk and threw his body in a sewer entrance at Bitska Park. Oh my god. And then returned to his mother's apartment. And that body was never found. That's very horrible. Yeah. And I imagine it's only going to get worse as this episode goes on. Well. Oh, no. Oh, spoilers. <laughs> Don't want to spoil it for you. Yeah. Um, so after Odachuk's disappearance, there was an investigation that was opened by Moscow police. And they had witnesses that said that Odachuk was last seen with Pachuskin walking in the direction of the park. But... Uh, when Petruskin was arrested at his mom's house, or I guess the apartment that they lived in, on the 30th of July, and he was taken in for questioning, he basically just said that he hadn't seen him, and like he had met up with him, hadn't really seen him after that, left the park. Right. He, I mean, he was fine when he left the park. And so they didn't have any evidence tying him to the disappearance, so he was released. And they never found the body, so they didn't know he was murdered. have anything to tie him back to. Yeah. So, all right. So, just to continue the issues with sources information, there's sources that say that he struck Odachuk with a hammer and didn't strangle him. It's kind of hard to tell. Doesn't matter. How are they saying this if they never found the body? I guess he's he's said that he strangled him in some statements. Oh, like later on. And then he said that he hit him with a hammer in other statements. Or they might just be assuming because this was his, like, kind of his MO was to okay. hit people over the head. And this, like, came from a confession when he was older or something. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway. Um, Pachuskin stopped killing for several years, which, I don't know, he didn't really stop, I guess. He killed one guy. Stopped for several years until 96, when Russia placed a moratorium on the death penalty. Now, here's, here's the thing. We're getting into some other information. There's another source I found said Pachuskin's first killing was another, uh, he pushed another boy out of a window in 92. And they say that's according to his televised confession. But I couldn't really find that much on that. And one source talked about his confession to pushing a romantic rival out of a window. So that story was his girlfriend Olga broke up with him, starting dating this other guy, Sergey, and Pachuskin pushed him out of a window. But it's sort of odd that not many sources really mention that one. You would think it would be a big deal. Yeah, especially if that was supposedly like his, one of his first ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he later confessed to killing Olga, the same ex. Oh. Um, but authorities haven't confirmed this claim, and it's kind of double unclear if it was the same year or if it was a few years down the road or when that really was. So by 1992, we know of at least Odachuk. There might be these two other ones. Right. But, so he's killed at least one person. Possibly three. Maybe three. And then he stopped killing for a bunch of years until the death penalty was um, was lifted. Now, also, the the Wikipedia article, and there's a, like, a murder, true crime-opedia kind of thing that I was reading. Both of those say that he stopped killing until 1996 when they ended the death penalty, and they say... But that was what sparked his interest in killing again. But there's literally zero evidence of that. So, like, that's not the reason that yeah, he started like killing again. Yeah, like, if he didn't again. say that was the reason, then yeah. how would you know? Um, actually, every source that I read that actually makes any kind of sense <laughs> was that he started killing again in 2001. 
And that's not to say that he wasn't killing in between this time because there's like, it's so hard to tell. Yeah. Like how many murders, first of all, and when they were. But the the next confirmed murder was 2001. So he he made a list of acquaintances that he intended to kill. And then during his confessions and during some interviews later, he is quoted by saying, the closer the person is to you, the more pleasant it is to kill them. It's more what? emotional. Ew, ew, I hate that. Yeah. Oh. So this comes from a source uh, from Ranker. This next bit of information I'm going to read to you. Um, so some killers take souvenirs from their victims, like little personal items or pieces of hair, whatever. Um, they're like trophies. Or they'll take full body parts. Um, others recreate homage to their murders, like Pachuskin, which is, I guess, that chessboard that he carried around with him. So, this the the trophy or the the souvenir is told by these crime psychologists to quote to maintain the bridge between his dream desires and the reality of acting out his fantasy. End quote which is kind of a weird thing that you would want to keep around. But anyway, Ranker says that he kept a small notebook in his pocket on which he had sketched out a chessboard, and each square had a date written in it that corresponded to one of his alleged murders. And at the time of his arrest, the 33-year-old had filled approximately 61 of the 64 squares on the chessboard, and he later admitted that once he completed the board, he would have continued to kill quote-unquote, indefinitely. That's horrible. So, some sources say 60. Some sources say 62. Some going right in the middle, and it's just 61. Yeah, if he filled in 61 boxes, I'll take his word for it. Yeah. So, I've also seen sources talk about the chessboard like it's an actual physical chessboard, um, which is like what I was reading in the beginning. They found an actual chessboard at his apartment that he had, like, stuff listed on. And then this source says it's a notebook. But then I also found pictures of the notebook, and I found pictures of the chessboard. Well, maybe he did both. Yeah. It sounds so, like he did both. The The notebook was probably for on the go, and then the chessboard was more yeah. um, like the final draft when he got home. Right. So I put in my notes that um, if it is just the notebook, that's way lamer than it could have been, and he loses style points. Oh, my gosh. So... I would like to tell you a little bit about the park area where he operated in. Okay. Bitska Park, the nickname for Moscow's Bitsetsky Park, consists of 2,700 acres of woods, and Pachuskin lived only a six-mile, uh, or not six-mile, six-minute walk from the edge of the park. The locals describe the area near the park as a quote-unquote bad neighborhood, mainly because of the unknown assailant that was dubbed the Bits of Park Maniac. <laughs> That'll <guy>. do it. <laughs> He's the reason. That'll do it. Um, they s- said <laughs> it was dubbed that because this guy killed almost a dozen people during the early 2000s. It was way more than that. Yeah. Um, About five dozen. Yeah. So the easy access to the park and the homeless people who lived around it are two of the reasons why Petruskin said he chose that as his hunting grounds. 
So initially, he would hide his victims in the nearby sewage works. And after a few years, he just started to leave them out in the open. But basically, so the sewage was kind of linked to all parts of like Moscow, basically. It's kind of linked to all these different places. And the current and the water was enough to carry bodies all over the place. So they couldn't really be found. And even if they were deposited somewhere and somebody found them, they couldn't really be linked back to like a specific place in the park. And they couldn't definitely couldn't be linked back to Pachuskin. So that's why he was throwing them in these wells. But um, on May 17th, 2001 is when he started killing again. He was in Bitska Park playing chess with a man named uh, Yevgeny Pronin. And when the game ended, Petruskin invited Pronin to take a walk with him. Um, he said that he used to own a dog and told him it was the anniversary of his dog's death and he wanted to visit his grave. And Pronin accompanied him. And when they reached the spot where Petruskin said that his dog was buried to pay homage, he offered him a drink, which Pronin accepted, and then Pachuskin bludgeoned him over the head repeatedly with that vodka bottle and dumped his body into a nearby well. A nearby well. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't hear what you said. A nearby well. Yep. Or like one of those sewage drainier, yeah. drainage things. So between May of 2001 and September of 2005, he attacked like 36 other victim, victims at least. Three of those victims survived their injuries. And so basically his MO was that he would approach these victims. Most of them are elderly or homeless people or elderly homeless people or women or children. And he would ask to share. So everybody except like able-bodied men. Yeah, pretty much. Well, and they it was supposed to be people that he knew, so like people that he played chess with, he would... Oh, yeah, and they were older. Yeah, and so, and he said, I mean, I, I read the quote just a little bit ago, if he was friends with them, it would made it sweeter to kill them. Yeah. Ugh. It's more emotional that way. So, anyway, he would offer them a drink, and then he would kill them, either by striking them in the back of the head with a hammer or a bottle, but he's also known to have just thrown them into the sewage canal to drown. And he would sign the corpse sometimes by, after he would bludgeon their skull with the vodka bottle, he would break it and shove it into the opening in the skull. Ew. So they found a lot of, vod of bodies like that. And so they, that's when they knew it was kind of like a, there was a pattern here of this guy putting the vodka bottle in the like skull. Signature. Yep. So anyway, there's this lady, Maria Viracheva, who was one of the few people, one of the three actually, that were lucky enough to survive on February 23rd, 2002. She was pregnant and she was a salesperson. And he, uh, he lured her into Bitska Park, pushed her into the same well where most of his victims were disposed of. And, but she clung to the sides with her hands. And he held her by her hair and smashed her head against the concrete walls oh repeatedly gosh. until she fell. And then he left thinking that she was dead, but she survived. Oh. 
And she managed to climb out of the well without suffering a miscarriage. Good Vera Cheva reported the crime to the police. But there's a catch. Are you ready? Yeah. This is crazy. So Vercheva was from a different province in Russia. And it was still like the Russian mainland, but the way the USSR worked at the time, they had like all this stuff split up. But after the USSR went away, it was all just Russia. But Russia said that all these different provinces weren't like Russia proper, I guess. So she was an illegal immigrant in Moscow. <laughs> what? Apparently, that's the way this works, because huh. something about the USSR, and I don't understand it, they're communists. Nothing makes sense. So anyway. Fair enough. She was an illegal immigrant in Moscow, even though she was from this other province in Russia. So she didn't have any papers, and so she reported this to police, and they said, oh, hey, you don't have any papers. So if you don't have any papers, we're going to have to send you back to this place where you, first of all, you don't want to be because it sucks and there's like a low population and not very many job opportunities and everybody's poor. And also you're going to be charged with a crime. Are you joking? So that sucks. And so if you, if you just drop this whole thing, so we don't have to do all this paperwork. Oh my God. We'll just let you go. And we're not going to say anything about this murder guy. That makes me so angry. That poor woman. Yeah. So she did. Um, oh, that's so sad. It is, yeah. I'm it's glad kinda, that she and her baby were okay. It's all due to lazy police work. So, yeah, truly. Oh. Anyway. Well, that's a bummer. She she was forced basically to drop that claim that Pachuskin attempted to kill her. So, there was another survivor, Mikhail Lobov, who was a teenage skateboarder on March 10th, 2002. He was led by Pachuskin into Bisco Park with the promise of cigarettes and vodka. And he was struck over the head and pushed down the well. And um, Pachuskin thought that he was dead too, so he left the scene. But Lobov's jacket caught a piece of metal inside, and it saved him from plummeting into all the water and drowning. And he was able to climb out. So days later, he confronted Pachuskin, only to be threatened with arrest by the police. Why? So I guess he like he like confronted Pachuskin and was like threatening him, and the police were like, "Hey, what the heck? You can't just threaten somebody like that." But you can throw people down a well. Well, they didn't know that he did that at the time, so it was just I guess luck at that point. Like they just thought that it was this kid like threatening Pachuskin, I guess. And he didn't explain to the police what actually happened. I guess not. Oh my goodness. So, here's something else. Not that they might have been much help after they made that lady drop the charges, but... Yeah. Um, November 15, 2003, Pachuskin's neighbor, Konstantin Polikarpov, was invited in for a drink to uh, Bitska Park. And Pachuskin bludgeoned him with a hammer three times before throwing him into the well. And he thought that he was dead, and he left... And Polikarpov climbed out of the well, Wow! climbed out of the sewer system, but he had so much head trauma that he didn't remember anything about the attack. Oh, no. So, check this out. The, okay. Okay, listen. (laughs) This is insane. The lady that I just told you about who was an illegal immigrant, I guess she had some kind of relationship with Pachuskin. Mm-hmm. Um, Can like, you remind me of her name? 
Um, her name was Maria Veracheva. So, I'm pretty sure this is the same lady that I was reading about who, she came out, she was accused of being an illegal, illegal immigrant. The only place she had to go was back to this apartment with Pachuskin. No. So, she has to go back to the same apartment complex. She, um, she comes back and is like, hey, what the heck? <laughs> you threw me in a well. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I'm really sorry about that. And then later on, he actually invited her to go for a walk in the park again. And she said, quote unquote, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. No, thanks. I'm okay. I'm really tired today. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. So legs, legs still hurting from the last walk we took where you tried to push me into a well and I survived. That is insane. Anyway. So listen. The police started to take the murders a little bit more seriously when he killed a former policeman named Nikolai uh, Zakharchenko. That guy turned up dead, but his body had just been left out in the open instead of being disposed of in the well. And they think that this was probably some sort of challenge to the police. Because they weren't doing anything? Yeah. And so Petruskin started to become a little bit more cocky by just leaving the bodies out in plain sight but he was still careful enough to avoid capture i gotta pee <laughs> okay from october 2005 to the final murder in 2006 pachuskin kind of changed his mo so he would kill his victims by hitting them over the head with a hammer and then push vodka bottles into the gaping wounds in their skulls Ew. um and he would always t- attack from the back um to take them by surprise and avoid spilling blood on his clothes. But I read 10 of his victims lived in the same four building complex where he lived. So there were four from the same apartment. Um, the two Kersenkaya, um, the like sh- street. I can't remember if it was a boulevard or, or not. It's fine. But it doesn't matter. Two Kersenkaya. There were two from four, um, and then there were three from six, and there were one from eight. So, he just killed his neighbors. Ten of them. That should have made him easy to find. Yeah. Anyway, he committed his final murder on June 14th, 2006. This lady's name was Marina Moskal... Hold up. (laughs) Marina... Moskalyova, and she worked at the same store where another woman, Larissa Kulgina, had worked before she suddenly vanished, and she had been killed by Pachuskin, who was a co-worker, on April 12th. So, this whole time, during the killings, Pachuskin was working as like a store shelf stalker, right? Not a not like a stalker. <laughs> not an, a stalker. He put stuff on shelves. Yeah. Stalker. He worked at this grocery store. He killed Larissa Kuligina, and uh, that was on April 12th. Then he decided he was going to kill Marina Moskaliova, who worked at that same store. <sighs> Excuse me. So, Kolgaina's strange disappearance didn't really seem to phase Moskaliova. That's 
kind of assuming that she was even aware of it. Um, th- some of the articles were kind of a little bit sketchy about that. If I'm not sure if like she just wasn't working at the same time or if like they had different schedules or if like she just didn't really note it. Like who knows? Right. She just didn't really think something was up. Yeah. So she took a walk with her coworker into Bitska Park where he struck her with a hammer. And what Pachuskin did not know was that before she went on the park on the walk in the park, she wrote a note to her son. This is Moskoyova, wrote a note to her son that said she was going on uh, a walk with this guy. And she said where she was gonna go and who was with her, which is a note what to is like his name? Yeah. Nice. This is like a note to like all females everywhere that if you're gonna go anywhere with anybody, maybe you wanna like make a note or like text a friend that like Oh, we already know. Yeah. We've been sure. doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just a, like a gentle reminder. That, yep. Don't worry. <laughs> like, by, by the way, are you like, like, I'm sure you're aware at this point, like being into like the creepy true crimey stuff. The people are like surprisingly easy to kill. Jane, like, don't say things like that on the podcast. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like just the human beings are like extremely fragile yeah. Like, as I guess everything is, sort of, but, like, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that out loud. Yeah, like on crazy, a pro- this crazy is, thing to say. This is one of those things that, like, a prosecutor one day is going to, like, <laughs> oh clip and be God. like, did you say this? And it's like, yeah. It was not in that context. Not what I meant. <laughs> anyway. But, yeah, make, like, make a note to somebody. Like, <laughs> text somebody. Like, Let it, someone know where you're going. Yeah. Because you never know. Like, if something does happen... At least they have a record of like where you were and who you were with, and which now I mean everybody can track people's phones. But if you don't have your phone with you, it's good yeah. that somebody knew where you were going. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so that note contained uh, Pachuskin's name and his phone number, and so the, nice. her son called Pachuskin, and Pachuskin said he hadn't seen her. I listened to a podcast about this exact thing a few days ago, and the podcast said that. Pachuskin claimed to not have seen her for a couple of weeks. I didn't see that in my sources, but you can imagine, like, <laughs> you know that your mom worked with this guy. And yeah. he's like, I haven't seen her for a few weeks. Right. All you have to do is, like, check with the other coworkers. She's like, there. we work together. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, he, he was like, well, that's kind of suspicious. So, he informed his father about it, who called the police. And another thing that Petruskin was unaware of is that Moskayova's clothing had in her pocket a metro ticket. And on the CCTV footage of the station where they, she had bought the ticket, they had CCTV footage of her walking with Petruskin. Nice. So they had them together. Okay, yeah. And they knew Good. that, so anyway. So they knew he was lying about not having seen her for weeks. Yeah. Good. So two days later, he was arrested. Like, apparently, like, a SWAT team kicked in his door at his apartment, and his mom was there, and he was there, and his, like, sister and brother-in-law and nephew and stuff. Anyway, so out of the 60 alleged murders to 62 alleged murders, 48 or 49 of them were confirmed. And according to Pachuskin, he idolized that guy from earlier, Andre Chikatilo, who was another serial killer who killed 
I think it was 52 people. And Pachuskin wanted to surpass his idol, Chikatilo's confirmed body count, by killing at least 64 people, which represented the number of squares on a chessboard. But he said even if he did reach 64, he would have just kept killing until he was stopped. He just, he didn't care. He just wanted to kill. That's just so crazy. So, anyway, he claimed that while killing people, he felt like God as he decided whether to kill his victims or whether he should let them live. And he says, quote, for me, life without killing is like life without food for you. I felt like the father of all these people, since it was I who opened the door for them to another world. End quote. So experts at the Serbsky Institute, which is Russia's main psychiatric, psychiatric clinic, found Pachuskin irrecoupable, which means he'll never be cured of his insanity or his desire to kill. So, there we go. Let's go to the trial, because it's also a doozy. Oh, okay. So, there was a documentary called Serial Killers, where Pachuskin, uh, when he was arrested, led officers to the scenes of a bunch of his crimes in Bitska Park, and he demonstrated a keen recollection, quote-unquote, of how the murders were committed, and he would act them out in pretty good detail on how he did it and what they did and all this stuff. That has been committed to film, and I guess they used some of it in the, first of all, the trial and also that documentary. So he asked the Russian court to add an additional 11 victims to his body count, which bringed the claimed death toll to 60 and three surviving victims. During the trial, he was housed in a glass cage a glass cage? Yeah. So there was another guy, and it might have been Chikatilo, or there was another person who was a serial killer who was really bad. But they were housed in glass cages for their safety and also so they wouldn't lash out at anybody else. So he, um, so, uh, so the judge, Vladimir Yusov, he, he took an entire hour to decide the verdict which is life in prison with the first 15 years to be spent in solitary confinement. Wow. And so in 2008, while he was in prison, he gave an interview to a Russian tabloid. And for lack of a better description, it's sort of disturbing to me. And you know I'm not really often disturbed by certain stuff, but it's like the way he describes it is just like very bothersome for some reason. This one gotcha. Yeah. So I'm not going to read everything. But if listeners want to get a view into like his thoughts and his brain and stuff, they can go to murderpedia.org and search for Prochuskin. And this article has some of the main points of his murders. And then it has all these excerpts of like the news articles and stuff that I haven't really gone into because they just sort of reiterate everything. But it's a wild ride. Uh, he basically goes into a lot of what he believes as far as like religion and how he thinks. Um, and he says that he thinks he's the victim's father because he's the one that ushered them into the next life. Um, he doesn't appear to believe in any kind of afterlife or any God, even though he says that he's ushering them into the next life. I don't really understand that. He also said that prison was kind of a big adjustment at first, but they have really good hot water. So hot that he has to dilute it with some cold water 
and he doesn't really value human life at all, and he'd gut his lawyer like a fish, and he doesn't even care to remember everyone he killed or how he killed them. Which seems like he's maybe not telling the truth because he did take police to a bunch of the murder sites and reenact how he killed them. And he did keep a log with the names and dates of all the people he killed, so, uh, like, maybe he's not telling the whole truth. Um, he says he doesn't write because only girls and journalists write. <laughs> so <laughs> Girls and journalists. <laughs> yeah. He said, he used a word, I can't remember the word, but it's like a Russian slang for girls. And um, it, he says he doesn't write because only girls write. And then it says dot, dot, dot. And I guess journalists too. <laughs> so. Um, anyway, the website adds a bunch of those excerpts I was talking about from these articles written at the time. If anyone cares to really read them, they just reiterate everything that I've pretty much said so far. Um, that's pretty much it as far as his information goes. Um, he's held at one of Russia's Arctic penal colonies known as Polar Owl, which is penal colony number 18 of the Federal Penitentiary Service of Russia. It's one of the seven supermax or special regimen uh, penal colonies in Russian terminology. Um, And it's a corrective labor colony operated by the Federal Penitentiary Service for convicts sentenced to life imprisonment in Russia. And in addition to special regimen, it has sections with common and strict regimens. The Polar Owl facility has held numerous serial killers and also been used to hold political opponents of Vladimir Putin. So I've got some names for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Alexander Elistratov, who was born in 1954, he made an un, uh, an unsuccessful escape attempt in 2011. Alexander Greba, who was born in 1980. Uh, Yevgeny Kolesnikov, who um, was born in 1984, died in 2016. He killed himself at the colony. Sergei Osipenko, who was born in 1970. Ivan Penchenko, born in 1968. Alexander Petruskin. Dmitry Voronenko, born in 1971. Mikhail Alexandrovich Yudin, born in 1975. Um, Abdufato Zamanov, born in 1973. Sergei Zastanchanu, born in 1979. And Alexander Zizic, born in 1979, who... He, th- this particular guy was one half of a killing team with his brother. All of those names are serial killers that have been held there or are currently there. So, they got a lot of serial killers. All right. I remember I told you I gave this a happy ending? Yeah. I didn't know if that was real or not. We're going to talk about chess for oh, like the next this is our happy ending. three pages of notes. <laughs> okay. Two pages of notes. <laughs> So, because I love chess. I love... No, now I have to keep an eye on you. No, I don't have a head injury yet. Yet. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) yet. I love chess. I love playing chess, play online. I'm not very good, but I like it. And there's actually somebody wrote a blog post on chess.com for... Which is where I play online, mostly. Um, and this was on this and there were people in the comments 
And there was also people in the comments of another article I read that were asking how good he actually was at chess. And so I was trying to find information on like, how good was he? And what, like, what was his favorite opening to play? And what did he like? So oh my goodness. I wanted to really get personal. None of that information exists, apparently. They just say that he was a very talented chess player. He played pretty much every day while he was living with his grandfather. Um, but there's something interesting to speak on regarding Soviet chess specifically. So do you know anything about Soviet chess? No. All right. I know barely anything about American chess. Right. So, Soviet chess, this is where, like, we lose all of our viewership. So, like, the at, <laughs> at like, 55 minutes. Everybody dropped off. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Soviet chess is very interesting because the nation of, like, Soviet Russia or the USSR trained people from really young ages in chess to be very specifically the best in the world. At chess. And only chess. So, that was because there was so much competition between the the East and the West, or like the USSR and basically Russia. They competed with the entire rest of the world. So like boxing, there was competition, weightlifting, all of the Olympic events. It was like this whole big thing that like... Hockey and like American hockey and the Russian hockey was like a whole big thing. Like there were all these famous matchups between the USSR and the American team of whatever sport it was. So, and they would specifically train them up as like, Hey, your, you, your aptitude test for like, you know, pattern recognition and your intuition on certain things is to a certain level that we're just going to teach you how to play chess for, your entire life until you get good enough to play against the Americans and prove that Russians are smarter than everybody else. <laughs> okay. Right. Same thing with like fighting, like, Hey, you're really strong as a kid. So we're going to train you to be a boxer and then you're going to beat up Americans. Future for you. Yeah. And so they did it with like ballerinas and stuff. Like there's a whole Soviet oh, ballerina yeah. school and everything. So they had schools for everything in Soviet Russia is crazy. Anyway, the Soviet school of chess is, that everybody says it's a supposed to be like a national style. So if everybody played this certain way, you would be able to identify them as like a, like a Soviet chess player without even like knowing who they are. You would be able to identify this person comes from this school of chess. So chess was kind of like a game of the upper classes until it was supported by the actual leaders of the countries after World War II. And now, worldwide, it's known as like a really, really solid chess style. Like, barely any weaknesses. They they train everything. So it's not just like, it's not just playing like tactics all the time. It's, you're good at everything you could possibly be good at in chess. So, there was a whole generation of Soviet chess players who were kind of led by who would become the, the world chess champion, Mikhail Botvinnik. And he kind of started the string of victories over all of the international chess competitors. The main contribution of the Soviet style of chess for this whole generation was that they trained them so rigorously that like 
they actually took all of the masters from the older generation and trained all of them up. And so every generation kept getting better and better. And that wasn't really a thing with like the American schools of chess necessarily. So like they didn't really have the structure or the rigorous training that the Soviets did. But in Soviet Russia, they actually considered chess a sport rather than like just a game or like an art, I guess. Generally speaking, chess experts in the USSR described their style of play as fast-paced and daring. Daring. Yeah. I like that. So, I've got some names for you. These are like super, super famous names from chess who came from, um, who came from the Soviet school of chess. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Have you ever heard of Anatoly Karpov? Uh, it feels familiar. All right. Maybe. Anatoly Karpov was the 12th world chess champion from 1975 to 1985. He was three-time FIDE world champion in 93, 96, and 98. And he was twice world chess champion as a member of the USSR team in 85 and 89. And a six-time winner of the chess Olympiads as a member of the USSR team in 72, 74, 80, 82, 86, and 88. He was a big deal. A huge deal. Oh my gosh. Anatoly Karpov is like a genius. He had a rivalry for a long time with another master Russian chess player, Gary Kasparov. And to an extent, that's kind of continued because Karpov sort of supports Putin and the current Russian government. And Kasparov has been pretty open about not liking Putin. Both of these people have ran for um, like some kind of government position. Gary Kasparov doesn't go back to Russia anymore. So, for reasons. So, um, Gary Kasparov was a grandmaster, or still is a grandmaster. You never really lose that title. Um, he's the former world chess champion from 1985 to 2000. He was a politician and a political activist. His peak FIDE chess ratings, FIDE is like the Worldwide Chess Association. His peak FIDE chess rating was 2851, which he got in 1999. That was the highest ever recorded rating until it was surpassed by Magnus Carlsen in 2013. Wow. And from 1984 until his retirement from regular competitive chess in 2005, Gary Kasparov was ranked world number one for a record 255 months overall. And he holds the record for the most consecutive professional tournament victories, 15, and chess Oscars. There's 11 wins for that. I'll say something about Alexander Petruskin now. Remember the part where he would get drunk and play chess, but he wasn't really affected by his drunkenness? Yeah. Magnus Carlsen, who is the current greatest ever chess player ever, period. No competition like whatsoever. <laughs> no one can tell me otherwise. <laughs> Um, he has a, I think it's a Lee chess account called Dr. Drunkenstein. Oh my goodness. Where he gets drunk and beats grandmasters regularly. <laughs> like the top 20 people he in chess. While he's drunk. He gets hammered. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and beats them. And he plays the dumbest openings ever, like online. Like there's, yeah. there's these tournaments that every Tuesday, there's a title Tuesday on chess.com where 
if you have a master title, you can be a candidate master, international master, FIDE master, grandmaster, whatever. All of those people can play in these tournaments. Magnus Carlsen will log on and just play like junk moves for the first five moves and still win against people that are the best in the world. My goodness. Like the top 1% of chess players. Yeah. That's how good he is. Anyway, I'm done fangirling over Magnus Carlsen. <laughs> anyway, uh, Gary Kasparov was the youngest ever dis- undisputed world champion in 85 at the age of 22, defeating the then champion Anatoly Karpov. And he, then he defended the title against Karpov three times in 86, 87, and 1990. And then Kasparov held the official FIDE world title until 93. And then he had a dispute with FIDE and quit FIDE, started his own chess organization, and then he came back in 97. And he was the first world champion to ever lose a match to a computer under standard time controls when he was defeated by IBM supercomputer Deep Blue in a highly publicized match. Do you know anything about that? About that match? About the chess computer? That he so at a certain point when computers were being developed, they would teach them to play chess and they weren't very good. And then IBM came out with their supercomputer, which is now like I'm sure your iPhone has more computer power than this IBM supercomputer from like the 90s. Mm. But they he played the supercomputer, Deep Blue is what it was called, and he lost. Mm -hmm. And so that marked the point where chess officially became better than actual the the computer players at chess became Became better better than than the people players so and now you have um the chess computer that's really popular now is there's a few other ones there's actually every year there's a tournament between the top chess engines which are just computers and they just let them run using all the computer power that they can muster and i think the top right now is Stockfish 15, I think is what they're up to. Yeah. So, pretty crazy. Anyway. There was um, one of those IBM computers that played on Jeopardy once. His name was Watson. Huh. I mean, it was probably different, but I remember it, like seeing that episode. It was an IBM. Did it win? Yeah. <laughs> they donated Figures. the money that it won to charities. But yeah, yeah, it won. Um, They, they should have let him keep it. <laughs> <laughs> um, So, Gary Kasparov... He held that uh, the World Classical title until his defeat by Vladimir Kramnik in uh, the year 2000. Vladimir Kramnik, Kramnik has since lost his freaking mind, and he's been accusing literally every grandmaster of modern day of cheating. So he's a nut job, and I don't know that anybody really respects him as much as they used to. But he used to be like the world number one mm-hmm. at for a certain time. There is Mark. Evgenievich Taimanov. He's a Russian grandmaster from um, the early, early 1900s. He was the top 20 from 1946 to 1971. And he also was a one of these big authors. He wrote a bunch of stuff in chess. And he was the world championship candidate in 1953 and 1971. And there's a bunch of chess openings that are named after him. So... Uh, mainly the Taimanov Sicilian, which is, uh, the Sicilian is a very common chess defense that is named after um, the, uh, there's a very specific move order that gets you into certain 
chess positions. And he developed one of these that's like one of the biggest chess openings ever. So that's he's a big deal. Taimanov is a huge deal. Um, he also has a Nimzo Indian defense named after him. That's not as big of a deal as a Sicilian, but it's still big. So anyway, Mikhail Botvinnik has a bunch of openings named after him too. Um, the one that comes to mind is the Botvinnik Karls Karakan, um, which I play personally. And he actually taught Anatoly Karpov, Gary Kasparov, and Vladimir Kramnik. So he's kind of a big deal and taught a bunch of these guys who would later become the world chess champions. Then there's Victor Korchnoi, who also has a Karl Kahn variation. Um, Alexander Alekhine is a hugely famous guy. He came up with um, the, it's basically Alekhine's defense, but um, he uh, came a little bit earlier in the chess story, but people still play the Alekhine's defense today. It's like a hundred years old, which not that that really matters because people still play the Italian game. It's been being played since like the 1600s. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Boris Spassky. You ever heard that guy's name? I don't think so. He's a huge deal. <laughs> He's a huge guy. Russian chess grandmaster, 10th world chess champion, holding the title from 1969 to 1972. He played three world championship matches and lost to Tigran Petrosian in 1966. And then he defeated Petrosian in 1969 to become the world champion. And then he lost to Bobby Fischer. This is the biggest match of ever of all time. Probably. <laughs> I'd like to tell you about it because it's my episode in the podcast. Okay. Take it away. Listen. 1972. Height. Of Russia and America not liking each other very much. Not friends. Bobby Fischer shows up on the chess scene for a long time, and he's like number top ten. And Boris Spassky's number one in the world. He's the champion. And Bobby Fischer beats him. The match was played in, this is a word, Largadalshol Arena in Reykjavik, Iceland. And it's been dubbed the match of the century. Bobby Fischer was the first American-born United States citizen to win the world title and the second American overall. The first one was Wilhelm Steinitz, who's not an American-born citizen. He was naturalized as an American citizen in 1888. But Bobby Fischer wins this match in 1972. And that ended for a little bit of time a 24-year domination of worldwide <laughs> chess by the Soviets. Good job, Bobby. Yeah, good job, Bobby. And then he was on like all these late-night shows because the United States was like, he's the, he did he's it. the guy, he beat he the Soviets, it. and we win the Cold War. <laughs> and we went to the moon. <laughs> Faked it. Anyway. Shame. So, <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I wanted to make a joke today so bad, I forgot before the podcast. But the moon today is very bright. Have you seen it? Yeah. Very bright. And I wanted to I wanted to mention it on the podcast and say it it looks almost fake. Anyway. <laughs> Stop. I I did think that for I don't actually think well for the bit, I think the moon's fake. But <laughs> but not for real. Uh, <laughs> but I looked at the moon today and I was like, that doesn't look real. <laughs> that looks You're like, maybe, maybe I'm yeah, on something. <laughs> I, I wanted to call you and be like, I th- 
I think now I really think. <laughs> Stop. Anyway, Bobby Fischer ended 24 year run of Soviet chess. And it's extremely interesting to see all the history behind this like chess game and stuff. By the way, this goes back to like the early like 1400s, like modern chess, at least those 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. Um, and there's so many of these names that are like in Soviet chess that you like developed opening systems and like developed like they added moves to the game that weren't played a hundred years beforehand. Completely changed the way that the entire game was played. Um, I've got, I want to show this to you or at least say it on the podcast because I looked it up. In 1972, this is this goes for like a really long time, like 24 years before this, like the top 8, 9, 10 people were Soviet Russian for like 24 years before 1972. And for like 20 years after the top, the majority of the top 10 were Soviet players. In 1972, when Bobby Fischer beat Boris Spassky, Bobby Fischer was number one, in the, he was from the United States. You've got four Soviet players right after that. Boris Spassky, Tigran Petrosian, Lev Poligevsky, and Viktor Korchnoi. And then you have this guy from Hungary, Lehos Portish. And you, then you have Anatoly Karpov, Mikhail Botvinnik, and Mikhail Tall from the Soviet Union. And then you have Bent Larsen from Denmark. So seven out of the top ten people who in the world at chess were Soviet. And for a long time, it was eight of the top ten, nine of the top ten. So, like, they were extremely they good. They were dominating. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good time to be a Soviet. So, <laughs> if, if you played chess. Yeah. Well, if you did really <laughs> anything except fight Americans in war. <laughs> classically, Americans are the best. Oh, my gosh. Doing war. So, anyway. Um, there's also this guy who, so his name is um, Alexander Morozevich. He developed the fantasy variation of the Karl Khan too. A lot of Karl Khans came out of uh, Russia. Funnily enough, though, the Karl Khan is named after two other chess grandmasters, Karo and Khan, who I don't think were Russian. Hmm. Anyway, regardless. This is me for the last like 20 minutes of the podcast nerding out about Russian chess history. So it's informative. Love it. People still actually go back and play games um, and look at games that are like were famous games that were played to study them and see where, like where they could have done different things. There's actually a famous example that Daniel Naroditsky did. Daniel Naroditsky is a current chess grandmaster. And he did a study of this game where they, I think it was played in like the fifties or sixties, a long time ago. They didn't have computers back then. The, basically, the, the game was like, if you're a chess master, you would get together with like 10 of your buddies, and you would just go over every variation and just figure out what's the best move and play through, you know, 10 moves of like whatever these variations could be, figure out whatever the best was. They would play matches for days on end. They would seal moves. So if me and you were playing together, we would get to the end of the day, and we would say, okay, I like we're at the end of the day, somebody has to make a move. 
if it's your move, then you write a, write a move down, seal it in an envelope, and then you would go back with your team and review this move and say, okay, this, this is what I'm going to play, then what happens? And you just have to do it by brute force with your buddies. Now you have computers that just tell you what the best lines are, like the top three lines, and you can study all of it. So for like 100 years, these computers didn't exist, and they didn't go to the depth that would help this one particular game pan out, but it turns out this one game would have changed the outcome of the winner if 25 moves ago they would have played this one pawn move (laughs) that seems like it doesn't do anything, doesn't matter. 25 moves later, it actually wins the end game. Wow. So and That's nobody knew it. for a hundred years until these computers actually got the depth that they needed to analyze. That's pretty cool. Anyway. Like I said, there's a bunch of people on like chess.com and some other articles that wanted to know how good Pachuskin was. Um, if he liked to play certain stuff. There's no information on that, like I said. There's not any even really any way to tell um if he was any good, other than like he played with people in the park and everybody said he was a really good chess player. But he's a serial killer, so it doesn't really matter. Um, but knowing the Russian school of chess, that most people that were learning chess in Russia were really strong players, as he probably was pretty strong. Um, and he's probably taught really well by his grandfather and by the old men in the park that he would play against. So it's a wonder, if he didn't have this head injury and become a serial killer and lose like the part of his brain that regulated his aggression... Would he just eventually become like a really high-level chess player in the 90s, like Vladimir Kremnik or, you know, Gary Kasparov or... Possible. You know, Anatoly Karpov or somebody like... I mean, could he have been like world champion or top number 10 or something? Yeah, he could have had a totally different life. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, he could have he could have been so good that he would have his own chess variation like the Pachuskin Sicilian or... And not have killed 61. The, the Pachuskin London or yeah something. But now all we have is the Pachuskin bludgeoning attack, which is not a chess variation, rather a good way to be thrown down a well. So that's the end of the episode. Shame. Oh my God. <laughs> I said I ended it with a happy ending. We're talking about Anatoly Karpov and Mikhail Botvinnik and all the good guys. Yeah, that was informative. Thank a little you. bit of a bummer topic, but yeah. Yeah. Definitely informative. Yeah. So. Good job. Thank you. You're welcome. Do you have anything you would like to say before <laughs> we end the episode? Um, I don't think so. Good episode. I have no idea what I'm going to talk about next time, but we'll see. There was something on the list that I now can't remember because that's the way it goes, but I wanted to ask you if you wanted to cover it, so... I guess we're both going to find out at the same time next week. <laughs> Do you want to look at the list? Uh, I mean, we can, yeah, well, but... We'll just let it be a surprise. Well, it's going to be a surprise anyway, because I don't know. Yeah. I never... I you typically don't know until the day before I pick my topic right. and do my research. Yeah. That way it stays fresh in my brain. So, we already did Alexander Petruskin. That one was today. Mm-hmm. We need to go ahead um, and check some of these off. I got behind on that. Yeah, I checked some of them off a few weeks ago, but... We're still behind. Um, I really want to get into doing some conspiracies this year. I'm very excited. Oh, we know. But I'm so <laughs> Um, You had put on here a few 
um, a few things like uh, the Blinner has a hotel or oh, yeah. um, the, uh, oh, I just lost it. It's, um, oh my gosh, Donner Pass. Um, and I was going to ask you if you wanted to do like Donner Pass or Diet Loft Pass, one of those. Yeah. Maybe Diet Loft because the Diet Loft Pass, a couple is Russian episodes, insane in, in a row. Literally insane. That's the, um, when I get to heaven and I get to talk to God, I'm going to ask what happened at the Dialogue Pass. Please tell me. I have to know. What if, what if he's like, I don't know, even though he does. I, he does know. <laughs> I am, I, that's my biggest unanswered question. I want to know that so badly. You have because, Harper's Ferry on here too. Oh yeah. Just Harper's Ferry in general is spooky. Yeah. Um, did you see the theory of the Dietloff Pass where they're saying they figured out what happened and it was an avalanche? <laughs> yeah. I do not, not accept that. Not that at all. Not a not a shot. So maybe that's what I'll do. I don't um, know. there was one. There, it's uh, oh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was these axe murders in Kentucky or Louisiana or somewhere in the United States, and they. This guy came into this house, killed um, both parents and four or six children with an axe. But he used the blunt side of the axe and didn't awaken anybody. And they never found out who did it. And they never found out who, how it happened or like where he, how he got in, how he didn't manage to wake somebody up, how like nobody knows how this happened. So, but yeah. Was that one you were thinking about doing? I think it's going to... Spoiled the ending for us. No, because I'm sure there's <laughs> theories that are involved. It's probably going to be a mini-sode. Oh, yeah. Which we probably need that. to think about doing some mini-sodes yeah. um, this year. Probably throughout the summer. But yeah. um, Megalodon is on here. I want to do that one. Um, MK Ultra is going to be like five episodes. So... That a series, yeah. The MK Ultra is like, and there's so many like alien stories we can tell too. I know we've mentioned yeah. that we'll get into that, but there's just like countless alien stories to tell. MK Ultra is one of the craziest things that like the government just admitted to. Like, yeah, they every year they come out with new documents, and there's always new MK Ultra documents from the CIA where they're like, Yeah, we did this stuff, what are you going to do about it? And it's like, Nothing. You, so for years, people were like, the government's not doing mind control experiments on the populace. And then they said, yeah, we actually were. We were doing that. And also, these people didn't know about it. And also, we were drugging them with LSD. And also, they might have been trained to do certain things to other countries' political officials. Save it for the episode. And no one's going to do anything <laughs> about it, it because we're episode. the CIA. So, and they just admitted to it. And then if you talk about MKUltra, people are like, you're a conspiracy theorist. It's like, I'm not. They said they did it. Moving on. They said they did it. The FBI killed MLK. That's not just written on the note that I said the FBI did it. The FBI was sued by the MLK family, and the MLK family won for the wrongful death of Martin Luther King from the FBI. And there's so much evidence for it anyway. I'm just, I'm so, 
I want to do Nuremberg Trials. That's very yeah. cool. I still have to do Shadow People on a mini episode because I didn't do that during the Cryptid Extravaganza. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Shadow People we need to do. That'll be a mini. Sea Carpet. Room 1046. That'll be a good one. <laughs> right in the oh, mic. I, have a, I got hiccups. Right in the mic. So many of these conspiracy ones I'm so excited to do. But anyway, I... Did we already do a witch trials episode? We did, didn't we? No, we did um, it. You, mass hysteria. We yeah, mentioned it. We talked about it within yeah. the context of mass hysteria. Huh. Well. <sighs> we'll talk about what we'll you're going to do. Yeah. So, anyway. We have a whole year. <laughs> thanks for listening. And you know what I forgot to do at the start of the episode? Say follow us, please. Yeah, say follow us. And also say to leave a five-star review. So if you made it this far, leave us a five-star review. Because we have nine five-star reviews. And Nobody we wanna, made it this far. <laughs> we want to do ten. For the leave us five-star reviews. Um, or four stars. If you didn't like us that much, but you still liked us a little bit. <laughs> but we have nine. We have we have nine and we want to do ten. And then later twenty. And so if you do that. And also it's the easiest way to help us out. Because Spotify and Apple Podcasts and stuff really like it. When we get five-star reviews. And it like they'll pro, like push our episodes more, so it's good. So <sighs> that's it. I don't have anything else to say. Definitely not. We don't have an intro to say, do we? I mean, an outro. Yeah, the outro we've done every episode since we started. You safe drive home. <laughs> Look out for the not deer. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be watch out for the not. It is. You blew it. Look, keep, keep an eye peeled for those. We're gonna get our first one-star review because you can't remember the outro. Keep, keep a keep a lookout for. You're ruining the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. <laughs> it's over. You ruined it. Bye. Bye. <laughs>